I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hi there, and welcome again to the Explaining History podcast. Um, this week, I want to do things a little bit differently. Um, slightly inspired by the, the circumstances which everybody here in the United Kingdom is, is living under. Um, and slightly inspired by some of the stuff I've been reading at the moment. Um, there, there's an awful lot to reflect on uh, as we appear to be at the, the end of what you could call the neoliberal era. This is uh, a an enormous an enormous epoch that we are sort of epochal moment if you will that we we are we are reaching. Um you could argue that it's been um approaching since 20 to since 2008 the uh, world economic crisis that in Britain the kind of um convulsion of nationalist sentiment in the guise of Brexit um, in 2016 gave it a few more years but in the kind of the clown-like um, character of um, Liz Truss who uh, a, a, far, a far more inept politician than uh, his, her predecessor Johnson uh, ever was um, the, the kind of the end is in, in sight now, as you know, I mean, I, I 
I do do a little bit of current affairs in this podcast where it's it's relevant, and there means things like Ukraine, which have been so enormously significant uh, and and complex that we we've done you know some some work to kind of navigate that. Uh, but I, I do not to t- obviously I tie in everything I do to an understanding of history, and the the roots of neoliberalism. I mean, it is it is to some degree a a kind of a a British phenomenon. Uh, it is you know one could argue that in the democratic world neoliberalism uh, captured um, Great Britain. Uh, to a greater extent than than almost anywhere else, though there are aspects of neoliberal penetration into all first world economies. Um, but they've they've held on in Britain for longer than than anywhere else, and and have penetrated deeper in Britain than than anywhere else. However, the the kind of the origins of neoliberalism uh, are Austrian. And Swiss, um, the uh, amazing book *Globalists* by Quinn Slobodian, um, which is, if you want to understand the origins of neoliberalism, this is the book to get. *Globalists* by Quinn Slobodian looks at the the, cri- the the twin crises of the First World War and the Great Depression, and looks at the origins of neoliberal thought, which emerged in Austria and Switzerland in um, Vienna and and Geneva in uh, the 1920s and the 1930s respectively. And in the 1920s there was an attempt to piece together the world order, Uh, a political attempt obviously with using the the League of Nations and to recreate some kind of new meaningful uh, world order, but an economic attempt as well. And the there was a, a close and very complex relationship between the uh, founders of the uh, League of Nations, the the intellectuals and political theorists behind that, and the economists of um, the, the, the the kind of the European economists who looked at a um, a world order where capitalism would be safe. Now, if you think of the context of the time just after the First World War, the first threat, you know, the, the, the existential threat to capitalism is the, the Russian Revolution. This is happening at the time, and this is, plays heavily on people's thoughts up until the early 1920s when it becomes abundantly clear that Soviet communism is not going to spread throughout the rest of, of Europe. But um, there, there, the question about how one stabilises um, the world or the world economic order, which had been really pieced together mainly by the British Empire, but also by uh, other empires that had um, dominated Europe, Africa, and Asia, all of which wiped away in the First World War. How one creates a, a new rules-based system? Now, there's a kind of an intellectual revolution within the the kind of the proto neoliberals. Uh, in the late 1920s, early 1930s, when all of a sudden the the work that was being done of trying to quantify um, the world economy and trying to kind of draw up uh, a model of the of the world economy, people like uh, Friedrich von Hayek suddenly throw this in the air and say, "The Great Depression shows us the world economy is unknowable. It's total chaos. You cannot map it. You cannot quantify it." And you shouldn't even attempt to. 
it's a bit like trying to measure nature. Well, you know, actually people do that quite successfully. But the the world economy is a force of nature and you, you should allow for it simply to be that. What you must do is protect it. You must protect the market from the predations of things like organised labour, um, the growth of the state. Um, of course, the, during the era of the Great Depression, statism is the answer in democratic and undemocratic societies. Uh, the New Deal, for example. Um, and state intervention is, in the eyes of, of neoliberals, almost always wrong. The, this perfectly self-balancing, self-ordering system that produces uh, particular sorts of results should always be protected. Uh, the fact that they that it produces particular sorts of results which almost always um, replicate inequality is simply a kind of part of part of its majesty the, the 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 underlying assumptions of people like friedrich von hayek and ludwig von mises um are, are, were always in tune with uh, the the value and the importance of inequality these ideas for most of their uh, the, the period before the 1970s were considered to be on the fringes of economic thought uh, Keynesianism uh, was the, the dominant economic model for most of the 20th century Hayek um, argued after the Second World War that crises present opportunities and it's the, the ideas that are lying around at the time are the ones which will be taken forward. Now I guess the, the, the question always is is what ideas are, are lying around uh, and it's unclear at the moment um, what would replace neoliberalism um, if there is a, a particular ideal, uh, ideology that would suffice um, any ideological position now surely would have to be based around or one that would make sense and have some kind of coherence would have to include the the reality of climate breakdown on our planet so you know we'll 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 see what emerges but anyway we're not about speculating about the future on this podcast we're always trying to kind of explore the past the there's a, a great bit in david edgerton's the rise and fall of the british nation where he says in essence in the 1970s uh, a, a kind of like a tier of the british middle classes and uh, the establishment the probably intelligence services the army uh, and um, the, the 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 bureaucracy, the civil service, the the that ruling middle tier of society, which is rather substantial, with buy-in from um, uh, various kind of aspects of, of Britain's elites, had said essentially enough is enough when it came to um, labour and the what you would broadly call the kind of social democracy in, in Great Britain the the um, development of union power um, the growth of the welfare state the extent of nationalization and we were all associated with britain's relative economic decline after the first after the second world war 
the extent to which they are responsible for that is a, a matter for intense debate and that's a subject of many other podcasts so we won't go there right now but there was essentially in the mid to late 1970s a British counter-revolution happened uh, uh, against the verdict of the Labour government of 1945. And we've been living really in the long tail of that counter-revolution for the following 50 years. Um, And we've reached now the end of everything the, 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 the end of that for a long period of time that counter-revolution had popular appeal because it made a certain sort of economic sense people with fresh and very bitter memories of uh, union unrest in the 1970s uh, supported Margaret Thatcher Margaret Thatcher's the majority of Margaret Thatcher's mandate came from this one thing which was the uh, the, the revulsion at uh, Britain's uh, striking trade unions during the winter of discontent um, and the idea that, um, stri- that the trade unions had almost uh, waged kind of economic warfare on the rest of the country where she isn't entirely fair at all um, the the unions were by and large their members were not kind of uh, blood curdling Trotskyites wanting to bring down and shoot the bourgeoisie and anything like that these were people who had suffered from the problems of hyperinflate well not hyperinflation but uh, rapid inflation throughout the 1970s and did not like their living standards being eroded these were car workers these were miners and these were uh, public sector workers, all of whom uh, wanted to participate in the mass consumerist society that emerged after, emerged after the Second World War and wanted their fair share of it and went on strike using uh, the power of labour, uh, labour organising, uh, to achieve that. One of the things that um, Margaret Thatcher did during the 1980s was to break the power of organised labour. However, during the 1980s, independent from uh, any action uh, Thatcher took, we saw a a radical decline in union membership. And this has all sorts of things to do with um, uh, urbanisation and social change and people moving from place to place and, and a whole bunch of kind of structural and generational um, into structural and generational uh, factors it, it is very helpful to Thatcher uh, certainly and this radical decline comes really after the defeat of the miners in, in 1984 1985 however we live in a world now or well, I live in a country where we have vastly weakened organised labour and at the same time, and uh, if, if this isn't direct causation, it's very close correlation, um, the returns to capital uh, of the uh, of GDP and productivity uh, ha- have vastly, vastly increased, and the returns to labour have vastly, vastly decreased. Now, we have... Uh, there was a... Thatcherism has a kind of like an, an artificial sort of shot in the arm from uh, council house sales and, and privatisation and North Sea Oil. There were a, a glut of sell-offs in the 1980s uh, and 1990s 
of uh, Britain's national infrastructure, which um, now, if you, if you look at the polling on uh, privatisation, is is wildly unpopular. Um, and the thing about infrastructure and houses particularly is that you only get to sell these once. One of the aspects of the Local Government Act 1918, which initiated the sell-off of private uh, of council housing, this to anybody listening around the world, these are uh, um, houses for um, families that are that are rented from uh, local government. These were sold off to their inhabitants for a very low cost. The money that was accrued from this was only half of it was allowed to go into building new houses for the next generation of people. Instead, it had to go into bringing down local taxes, rates as they were at the same time. So this created an artificial housing boom. Um, Not only were there new properties on the market, but also rates across the country come down and high local authorities with high rates were normally labour ones. So this was Margaret Thatcher's idea about democratising things so that high spending councils um, would get in trouble with their voters who wanted councils to spend less money and, and, and tax them less. Um, the result was... Um, a four decades of house price inflation um, where you now have an entire generation of generation rent who perhaps will never be able to afford a house and what happened the irony here is you get a, a sort of a conservatism which embraced these sorts of neoliberal ideologies shrinking the state privatizing things giving people choice and opportunity and all this this sort of stuff but this devours the base of kind of conservative um, conservatism. It devours the electoral base. People, in theory, I don't know how true this is, in theory become slightly more conservative with a small C or perhaps with a big C in their values when they take on the big responsibility of property and, you know, have families and all that sort of thing. But if you can't do that, you have an entire generation shut out of any likelihood of uh, owning property at all, while the chances of them voting for you are pretty slim. So conservatism... um, and neoliberal conservatism has been slowly, in in that and a number of other regards, devouring itself over the years. The selling off of national infrastructure, the selling off of council houses. That was fine for Margaret Thatcher, um, the, the breaking of union power. Um, and there are people that still remember her years very, very fondly. However, when you are uh, somebody like, the current incumbent Liz Truss who doesn't understand any of that evidently but likes to kind of get out the dressing up box and wear kind of Thatcher outfits metaphorically and and actually and perform do this kind of performative Thatcherism which is you're, you're doing it without any of the any of the tools available to the the Tories in the 1980s the whole point about the neoliberal revolution is you could only do it once. And once it was done and you'd spent the uh, the proceeds of things like North Sea oil 
you had um, alienated large parts of uh, the country uh, the the massive increase in support for Scottish nationalism is a product of Thatcherism almost certainly imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt now imagine them getting even softer over time that's what you'll feel with bowl and branches organic cotton sheets in a recent customer survey 96% replied that bowl and branch sheets get softer with every wash start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come try their sheets with a 30 night guarantee plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details hey it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad high quality fashion without the price tag say hello to Quince I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters sleek leather jackets fine jewelry and so much more with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands and they partner with factories that prioritize safe ethical and responsible manufacturing I love that Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Um, and you have... Um sort of supercharged the, the, the right of the party um, Margaret Thatcher you know, despite what the Brexiteers say isn't really the apostle of, um, of of Brexit she had a fairly balanced approach to Europe which was to being you know she was one of the architects of the single market however when it came to creating uh, what she believed she suspected would be um, a, a European super federal state, which is, it was her, her fear, and devolving more powers to Europe um, at the Maastricht Treaty. Before we uh, we got to Maastricht, that's when Thatcher said, absolutely not. This is a trading arrangement. So there, there, she had elements of uh, kind of Europhilism and elements of kind of Euro wariness, shall we say. But she's obviously been kind of captured by the Tory right as this kind of apostle of Brexit, which is, is not not the case. I mean, she voted to um, in the referendum to join the uh, EU or the EEC uh, and voted to remain in there in the second referendum in uh, 1975 um, when we had a, a kind of a, a referendum on, on membership. Um, so, so here we are at this kind of this moment. After two thousand and eight, um, most of the economic assumptions that neoliberalism is based on around the world ceased to be true. The idea that 
markets are fundamentally self-regulating, that it's not in the interests of um, big actors within markets to do things dishonestly or chaotically because that will affect them in, in the end. Um, this is, is a nonsense. I mean, and John Maynard Keynes could have said this, uh, you know, in, back in the 1920s, he said essentially, um, the, the animal, animal instincts of capitalism mean that it has to be sort of saved from itself. You have to stop greed from hyper-motivating um, uh, all, all decision-making. You have to um, disincentivize uh, reckless risk-taking. You have to um, prevent bosses from sacking workers just because they feel like it and because it might affect the bottom line. Because one day you'll create the forces, you know, as has been demonstrated throughout the 20th century, which will destroy the entire setup. Someone like John Maynard Keynes wasn't particularly on, on, on the left at all. This is somebody, a, a broadly a liberal thinker, uh, but somebody who concluded that um, the capitalist system is a system of rules. It has to be. It has to be defined by rules. Politics come ten, or, and, and um, structural always come before markets and markets aren't naturally occurring they're things that are created by states and created by societies uh, and they have uh, certain parameters the the uh, thing that, that trust is described as being is a libertarian well one might humbly submit that she probably hasn't really engaged with much libertarian philosophy at all when it transpired recently that she uh, had um, quoted Rick Perlstein's books on Reagan and Nixon as wonderful texts or texts of textbooks is in essence on how to um, go about um, a sort of trickle down economics deregulated society. Rick Perlstein, who is a kind of a, a, an unflinching critic of Reaganism. Uh, said, you know, she, I cannot believe that this person has um, has misinterpreted my work in this in this this manner. The Reagan that Rick Perlstein uh, presents to us is this sort of uh, bumbling incompetent, really, um, a, a a chancer and a fantasist who was able to exploit deep fissures in American society in order to present what turns out really just to be to be a myth um I mean, perhaps this is this is part of the appeal anyway anyway i trust is described as a as a libertarian um and she, she is advised by people who, who from the uh various uh economic right-wing think tanks things like the institute for economic affairs that um are funded by god knows whom um um, because they never uh, publish uh, their accounts or their list of donors, um, their influence uh, might possibly now be be, be shaken. Uh, the Institute for Economic Affairs recently, when um, the Conservative government under tr under trust published its mini budget which led to market panic and the the, the near collapse of Britain's pension funds um, 
because we, you know, trust couldn't uh, offered you know huge tax cuts to the uh, the top earners uh, without any indication as to how these would be paid for, but simply essentially uh, said to the the markets for British debt, you'll find out eventually, uh, which never really appeases people investing billions of pounds and dollars. Um, this was the sort of thing that it was initially music to the IEA's ears. There were people from the IEA and other right-wing think tanks who were rejoicing that trust had been uh, given the uh, prime ministership, obviously without having to go through the trouble of a general election, uh, and the and and principally because they knew that she would um, put in place the entirety of their agenda, the sorts of things that they had been working towards for for years, uh, the freedom for employers to dismiss workers whenever they felt like, um, the uh, total dissolution of uh, things like the NHS, which in their view is a kind of a barrier towards free enterprise in the healthcare section. Um, those sorts of ideas, which when you when you look at it from the perspectives of economics, is about helping markets to function more more efficiently. Um, when there is state provision, state provision distorts markets where there are workers' protections. Um, these distort markets, and you know you can't get rid of bad workers and get good ones. Um, uh, or better ones. Uh, there, this, this means that you know your your your, your system becomes very shaky. Your your system becomes very inefficient, and um, markets aren't able to do exactly what they want. Of course. Anyway, this the re the reason why this is held up as a kind of like an article of faith is that um, the. The functioning of markets in the, the kind of um, right-wing economic mind uh, are is 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 sacrosanct, and this is you know perfectible markets, which by the way Hayek didn't even think markets were perfectible anyway. He said you know, you, know, you would have to have kind of godlike omniscience uh, in order to uh, in order to be able to do that. Um, the, but anyway, the, the the kind of the economic thinking is that um, markets are almost a kind of a, a road to a, a sort of capitalist utopia. Really, there's there's some kind of interesting interesting links between that sort of Marxist Leninist idea of the the perfectible the perfectible individual and perfect, perfectible society. There's, it always exists as a kind of like a far distant utopia, and the neoliberal idea that perfectible markets will create perfectible situations and perfectible governments and perfectible people, um, and again that always exists in an imagined distant future. Well, we have now officially run out of road, economically speaking, um, and we've finally had a go at the, the kind of the, the most concentrated form of neoliberalism, the sort of things that Thatcher herself probably wouldn't dare to have done. Um, we've had a shot at that, uh, and the British public have started to get a sense, I think, of what that really, really will entail. 
And of course, it is the the most effective way. The re- the reason why uh, Britain's elites have always really really fancied this is the most effective way of maintaining class rule, which is whether that's economically beneficial to anyone or not is uh, by the point beside the point. But the maintenance of class rule is what it's all about. Um, and class rule isn't popular, it isn't possible without bringing along a chunk of the population at the same time with whom you can, uh, or whom you can kind of uh, encourage to be, uh, uh, to, to, to be supportive of the, the entire project you know, and, and give them some of the, uh, some of the benefits. There don't seem to be any any benefits to hand out now, and probably what we will see is when there is a, a Labour government, which looks increasingly likely, um, we'll see a shift back towards um, something approaching um, a socially democratic society. That's not to say there aren't neoliberals in Labour. Yes, there are. There are loads of them, and they have uh, very, very... Uh, close associations with their conservative friends. Um, one of Margaret Thatcher's often spoke, uh, often cited uh, comments is that New Labour were one of, was one of her her finest achievements. However, whether there will be a kind of el- widespread electoral support for um, things like privatisation, there's not much left to private left to privatise really. Um, or for the the kind of the injection of markets into the workings of the state, um, this is this is doubtful. Um, the British uh, economy and Britain's society have been left with such an enormous enormous legacy of of, of damage and chaos that it might be that a, a Labour government struggles on for five years and a newly resurgent Tory party comes back but then again the polling that has emerged recently that points to political annihilation for the conservatives if trust is uh, allowed to stick around which is partly to do with her uh, i don't want to call it ideology because i don't i don't really think she's an ideologue particularly i think she's sort of it pays attention to the last thing she's heard but her, her it's partly to do with her political and economic positions but it's partly to do with the fact that she's evidently kind of completely out of her depth and um, hasn't hasn't got really a clue about what's going on. Um, but that polling would would suggest that if if they don't do something about her, then the Tory Party is literally dead and buried. And here's where we reach the second great historical kind of jaw dropping moment of. And we talk about the the conservative British Conservative Party being all but dead and buried. We're talking about the most successful democratically elected political party really in, in world history. There has been no force in politics like it anywhere else in the world for maintaining its power. And if we were to ponder for a moment what factors have led to this kind of collapse in a kind of esteem for the party. One of those factors must be surely neoliberalism itself, an ideology that um, people in Britain never really embraced as a kind of an article of faith 
um, perhaps in the way that it was in America, um, partly due to the kind of the, a, a great a, a greater degree of British British cynicism, I suspect. Um, most of the um, throughout the nineteen eighties, the the lack of what you would call a credible opposition and um, the lack of a, a meaningful alternative um, uh, meant that. Thatcherism um, had an unnaturally long stay um, um, spell of uh, of life, but now the following two thousand and eight, and the inability to find any other kind of operating system for the economy, and then following uh, Brexit, which shrank Britain's economic horizons immeasurably. The decision now um, to institute this kind of absolutely pure turbocharged neoliberalism and the the, the backers of, of Brexit, the uh, right wing dark money backers of Brexit really backed it for this particular moment to occur where Britain's full transformation into a, a radical free market society uh, w- w- would happen. Once we experience that, the electoral fortunes of the Conservative Party collapse. And it must take something quite profound for, as I said, the most successful political party in the democratic world to face this kind of implosion. And it's it's always the ideas, you know. And I think as we, we almost approach neoliberalism's kind of fall of the Berlin Wall moment the question is what what eventually comes next something always does anyway a bit of a different podcast today but I'm I, I hope you can see why it's topical uh, and I'll catch you on the next explaining history podcast so take care all the best bye-bye
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.